Hi. Um, I thought it would be useful um, to say something about education, and particularly education in Scotland, but also I think education more generally, because what we've got in Scotland is nothing more than a particularly fine example of a broader tendency uh, in education that's uh, true across the world. From what I've heard, it's certainly the case in England that they're quite um, behavioristic, quite concerned with getting students to engage in particular tasks successfully, quite driven by objectives and performance criteria. And that's certainly been the story in Scotland. And it seems to be the story in the United States as well. The federal government has tied funding to the states uh, based on the attainment of particular objectives. There's an old saying which is that um, what gets done is what can be measured. And that's not always a bad thing. It uh, often makes sense when you're trying to control a large organisation to set up very straightforward parameters um, and that will drive behaviour and the super tanker that is a large organisation can be managed in that way and sometimes it can be managed any other way. However, there's a downside to engaging in that kind of targets culture. If you tell police officers that they're going to be assessed on how many arrests they make, they'll make more petty arrests. And that might well not be what you actually want to have done. That might well mean that the community begins to hate the cops. If you have American police forces where the sheriff is elected on the basis that he manages to organise law enforcement so it doesn't cost the community anything, so the cops spend all their time ticketing people for jaywalking and for not stopping at a stop sign, then you'll end up with a situation where the community hates the police. Particularly if the local authority then starts to manipulate the urban environment so that, for example, you can't cross a road very easily because the green man is only on once every five minutes. So you, you imprison anybody who's not driving and then you ticket them $60 for jaywalking. So systems um, can be very badly uh, driven by objectives, but sometimes it's necessary. So I'm not going to claim that, for example, the NHS is always a worse organisation because it has a target for cancer waiting times. But I think it's important to understand that any large organisation, when you try to manage it through very straightforward objectives, for sometimes good reasons, the risk of goal slippage, the risk that you'll set up incentives which cause bad behaviour is very high. Now, I've been working in education almost my entire working life. One of the uh, things that happens if you're quite good at uh, what the schools and colleges universities require is that you tend to be canalised into the system itself, particularly in the arts and social sciences when you've got fewer well-paid alternatives. So I um, ended up um, as a college lecturer for about 25 years and I've, I've worked for the Scottish Qualifications Authority as a part-time subject specialist and I've taught university students during my PhD and I've taught a whole range of students through nearly a quarter of a century. So if I'm not entitled to my opinion, then nobody is. With a Master of Education degree, with a fellowship at the Higher Education Academy, um, with a postgraduate certificate in education, with all my experience, um, if I'm not entitled to a say on education, then nobody is. I would be accepted by any court in the world as an expert in education to some degree. And uh, therefore, what I'm going to say, regardless of whether it puts your nose out of joint and regardless of whether you accept it, you have to accept that it's at least the product of some pretty considerable experience. Now, when we discuss education, there's a classic distinction between 
a, a stuffing in and a drawing out. The old saying used to be that education is what remains when you've forgotten everything you learned. The distinction between the changes that life brings about just because you interact with your environment and with other people, the changes that training makes and the changes that education makes, these are three different things. So nobody tells anybody how to cope with a smartphone or to use a bank card. People very quickly learn through um, wanting their needs satisfied and then seeing what the, the environment seems to require. They quickly change their behaviour. Everyone learns very quickly how painful it is to step off a step uh, and not see that it's there. So at a very early age you learn how to manage your urban environment. You learn how sore it is to bump into a piece of steel or concrete compared to other things and therefore you change your behaviour. So that kind of adaptation takes place anyway. Training is a very different thing. Soldiers do not have to understand the expansion of gases. They don't have to, have to understand Boyle's law. All they have to understand is how to make the rifle work. And they have to be drilled so that they do it as second nature. So you don't train people by making them think fundamentally. And indeed it can make things worse if you do. Because um, what happens is they then over-theorise and they start to um, arrive at their own conclusions about how to do something. And they might not have realised why that's been ruled out by the system. So for example, a soldier might rightly conclude that um, a weapon can be fired in a particular way um, to some advantage. They might conclude, for example, that uh, the range of the rifle is greater than, uh, than they're told. But of course, the reason why they've been told the effective range of the rifle is as it is, is because the people who drop the system recognise that if it's fired beyond that range, then other things follow. Uh, bullets fall um, onto targets that weren't intended because the rifle is inaccurate at that extreme range. The enemy are encouraged to take cover before they can be hit by other weapons because the bullets were fired at extreme range. So other things happen. So a person who can think can be a dangerous person in an environment where they have to be part of a machine, they have to be a cog, which is why some American police departments exclude candidates who are too bright because they've discovered that above a certain point in a psychometric test score, they tend to recruit cops who theorise and question everything. And that can be quite dangerous in a system that requires blind adherence to rules that might have deep reasons behind them. So training is a very different thing from education. Education is what you do when you draw out what Plato called the inherent capacities of the mind. Now, Plato had a very unusual idea about education. He thought you already knew everything there was to know. When someone tells you that, you think, that's ridiculous. I mean, what, what do you mean I already know everything I need to know? And what he meant by that was, in order for you to participate in the world, um, it must be the case there's already something deep in you that organises everything the world can offer. 2,000 years after Plato, um, Hume suggested that the mind was set up on some very basic principles, um, or the brain, I suppose Hume would have said. Um, you see things and you make copies of them, and your mind is driven by some elementary principles um, of, the for example, he calls it the association of ideas. So when you see something that's like something else, then you'll remember the other thing. When you see something which is a cause of something else, you'll think of the other thing. Or indeed something that's an effect of something else, you'll think of the cause. Um, and things that are found together, for example, um, sand and seagulls. When you see the sand, you might remember the seagulls. 
So the, the, the mind or the brain is driven by some fundamental principles. Now Plato suggested that, um, for example, drawing a distinction between two things, finding a similarity between two things, seeing that one thing is the cause of the other and so on, these must already be fully present in the mind in order for the environment to draw them out. There must be some kind of symbiotic relationship between you and the environment. And therefore, education, while it's a contrivance, education is um, providing you with a stimulus that the built environment might supply, but in, to a lesser degree and with less skill, with less craft, with less deliberation. So when, when someone takes you through, when... When the slave boy is taken through some mathematics and is asked to draw uh, lines on the ground with a stick and work out whether one line is longer than another and one area is larger than another, he already knows everything about that. He just doesn't know that he knows. So when you take him through the process, you draw out the inherent capacities of the mind. So education is what remains when you've forgotten everything you learned because everything you learned really wasn't um, necessary except to bring out what you already knew. So you become a thoughtful person who can, for example, decode speech because the ability to decode speech must have been there deep in your mind anyway. And what you did was sharpen it. So that's what education does. It sharpens what's already there. That's one traditional view of education. The other view of education is that it's a stuffing in, that you have to know that in 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue or that Agincourt was won because Henry decided to fight his battle in a narrow strip of land with trees to defeat the, the cavalry. And the uh, arrows panicked the horses and the English archers had practised on Sundays or whatever. So people think that education is a stuffing in. Some do. They think that you go to learn things. Um, they think learning is knowing the answers. In the movie Educating Rita, um, Michael Caine's character says to uh, Rita, um, you may find there's less to me than meets the eye. And she says, you see, you say clever things like that. And, uh, and that's what uh, uh, people think you know, uh, education is about. It's about being the kind of person who can say arch uh, things like that. Uh, people watch University Challenge and they think that that's what a university education is all about. It's about learning the things to, to say so if, um, if someone says to you um, which Polish um, astronomer was instrumental in, uh, in the, uh, the revolution uh, in our understanding of the solar system, the answer might be Copernicus. So people who've been to university know this and therefore uh, they, they know the answers, they know the, th the correct things to say. Now, that isn't actually what goes on in a decent university. Julie Butchill uh, I think, said of Stephen Fry, Stephen Fry is a stupid person's idea of what a clever person is. Now that's unfair, because Stephen Fry genuinely is clever. But you know what she means. And what she means is that Fry has all the answers and he always has something arch and clever to say. Um, and that's what people think being highly educated is. So education might be a stuffing in or it might be a drawing out. Uh, and it might be, if it is a drawing out, what some have said... Um, it is, which is um, what remains when you've forgotten everything you learned. So you go to school and 40 years after school you can still think things through because you've been taught to think things through. Your physics teacher has shown you a rubber suction and shown that it will not stick to a smooth surface. He then licked it and stuck it to the surface. 
and it then, after a period of time, fell. And eventually, after many minutes of painful schoolboy reasoning, you began to understand it was the saliva that was making a seal around the ragged edge of the rubber cup. And years later, that kind of reasoning, that kind of ability to think deeply about what might be true, allows you to see something about, for example, subsidies in a building, or to understand why a particular holiday offer or a higher purchase offer in a car might not be what it seems. You've had your mind sharpened by people who are skilled in it, stimulating it. So, these are the kind of rival views. Now, obviously, I think that the Platonic view is correct. I don't think there's much doubt about that. But it's, I think it's worth spelling out what the two rival main views are, because it's important to understand just how uh, trenchantly, how determinedly we've picked one and stuck with it. So, in the 1970s and 1980s, in the Scottish school system, when I went through the system, it was very much the case that the teachers were Master of Arts ordinary graduates. A lot of them had the classic teacher's degree, which was a three-year ordinary degree. And when I went to university in 1983, that degree was avoided still by people because it was difficult. Um, you had to do a language, you had to do something like moral philosophy, you had to do logic or maths. Um, and it was such a difficult degree that people did an honours degree, a four-year degree, a supposedly more difficult degree, because it was easier. It was actually easier to do a four-year honours degree in philosophy or history than it was to do a Master of Arts ordinary degree, because the ordinary degree was the teacher's degree. This was for people who were going to then go and become school teachers and had to be able to teach everything across the board, including, for example, maths and a language. And therefore, the teacher's degree was very, very much like the French baccalaureate. If you couldn't do everything to some degree, you failed it. Uh, in Glasgow University, they had to introduce French studies precisely because people couldn't pass the, the French course or the Italian course in the first year. So they had to bring in a watered-down language so that kids could get their Master of Arts degree. So, in the 70s and 80s, it was very much the case that the teachers were part of a system which was an ancient system and it was based on the Platonic idea of drawing out the inherent capacities of the mind. So teaching something like Shakespeare involved standing with a copy of the text, with every kid having a copy of the text, and reading it slowly and carefully until you began to form ideas. And this could be a long and painful process. You would spend almost the entire year covering The Merchant of Venice or Othello, or something similar, Macbeth, I think, uh, in fourth year, and it would just go on and on and on for months. A teacher at the front of the class, slowly and carefully reading key sections, writing questions on the board, and making you write about them. Now, at the time, this was agony. I was quite good at it, but it was agony. But what it did was, it gave me the kind of discipline to allow me to look closely at things and work out what they might say. It, and nothing could be, nothing could be achieved except by going through that forge, going through that painful process. If someone shows you, um, when you're 14 or 15, the lines, something like, all the perfumes of Arabia will not wash clean this little hand, or not sweeten this little hand. When you're 14, the word sweeten uh, means something particular. Um, and what, would, what is Arabia, and what might the perfumes of Arabia be? And if you're, if you're encouraged to look closely and someone's prepared to spend 15 minutes actually forcing a class of slack-jawed ingrates to look closely, eventually the penny will drop 
And that painful 15 minutes is vital. That is the education. Now, if you think that the important thing is that the students know that Lady Macbeth says that she's been sullied by the murder and can't be made good again, and if you think it's important that the student knows that, then you will tell them. Um, and then you will ask them to work in groups. They will have to sit around a table with their friends and discuss um, things that maybe, if you've done them, you'll never feel right again. So I want you to give me three things that maybe if someone did them, they would never feel right again. So think, for example, maybe you've let your mother down, you haven't bought her a present uh, for Mother's Day. How bad would that make you feel? So if you're a teacher and you think it's important for the students to know what it is that Lady Macbeth is saying, then you'll tell them, because that's one of the things they need to know. And if you want to lodge it in their head, what you'll do is you'll have group work, where they'll sit around and talk about similar things and report back to you, and you'll write them up on the board, and the students will have it lodged in their head that Lady Macbeth felt sullied by the murder and nothing would ever make her right again. And they will write that down, and you will tick a box, and you will staple a cover sheet to that piece of paper, and they will have achieved the learning objectives. And the trouble is that they will be as hopeless as they were at the start of the process. Nothing useful will have been obtained. Or well, certainly that was the view in the 70s and the 80s. Now, as I say, in 1983, if you're a working-class kid and you're fairly smart, you go to university and there's nothing. Um, there are lectures where someone who already understands spends perhaps 50 minutes talking animatedly about something that they understand and you don't. And they speak to you as if you already understand. And you scribble and you run up to the library afterwards and desperately try to make some sense of your notes. And there is nothing else. They, you're told to read books and, and articles and you don't understand them. You desperately try to understand and you sweat buckets and you pick random quotations from the articles and introduce them into your essays in the hope that someone will think you've understood what you read. And there is no way out of it. The sense of panic um, is quite something. The sense that you're drowning um, has to be experienced to be believed. Uh, you read and uh, you don't understand and you read again and you still don't understand and you think, I'm going to fail this. And there is no way out. The university has been there since, whatever, 1492, and they don't care. Um, the, uh, earlier than that, actually, if I think about it, most, in most cases, certainly in Scotland. Um, but they, they, they will set the exam and you will turn up and you'll fail or you'll pass. And that's just the way it is. Now, what happens is, most people pass. They go through the forge. Now, sometimes they don't and they have to do resets. I did. Uh, but they usually pass eventually. Uh, in one case, one of my friends took more than 10 years, but they pass eventually. The university doesn't move its standards and it doesn't move its methods. You change. You're not there to change it. It's there to change you. Uh, you're not there to demand satisfaction. It's there to demand satisfaction. So you turn up in the butte hall and reveal your ignorance, or you don't. Um, and, uh, and they ultimately don't care. Now in that system, you will change. You will become the Scottish lad of pairs. You will become, as Jordan Peterson, the psychologist says, a dangerous person. People who can read things closely, work out what they say, work out whether the internal reasoning holds and work out how to apply this to other questions are very dangerous people. They pick holes in things. They can work out whether a system proves what it's thought to prove. They can set up a system that does prove things. So that's the system. That's how it works. Now, 
What might happen in such a system? What might happen in the schools and what might happen in the universities? Well, let's suppose that it's 1997 and Tony Blair has been elected. Let's suppose that there's a persistent problem of long-term unemployment among young people. They can't get good jobs. And let's suppose that going to higher education, university, um, is a great thing for most people. What will happen? Well, what might happen is that 50% of the population will go to the universities and uh, they'll have to pass. It'll be impossible to fail everybody. So something else is going to have to happen if the people who are going to go from 1997 onwards can't pass under the sink or swim system that existed before. So that's one of the things that could happen. You could have a massive expansion in higher education, but the existing system is completely and utterly inapt for that group, that new cohort, who are going to attend the university. Now, if that did happen, and you were university academics and university administrators, what would you do? Well, you would find a way for the students to achieve somehow. So, if the quality assurance agencies required you to lay down exactly what it was in particular that students would know, so the school kid, for example, at 14 might have to know that Lady Macbeth thinks that the murder um, is such that she will never be clean again. And it might be the case that in 1997, a politics graduate has to know that Locke has a two-stage theory of government and that once a community is formed, it can never again be simple individuals. So you lay out in great detail the specific behaviours that the students have to engage in in order to be properly educated. Now, it's worth noting that two things are true. If you're looking at the pieces of paper, it looks as if the students are still achieving. It looks as if they still have gone through the process because the bits of paper they now produce are remarkably like the bits of paper they used to produce before you made the change. When you were drawing out the inherent capacities of the platonic mind, bits of paper were produced, often quite scrappy bits of paper with no particular... Uh, great insights, but nevertheless, the legitimate process had been gone through. Uh, as someone once said about a driving license, it doesn't prove you're a good driver, it just proves you can drive. So if you begin to lay out exactly what the student has to say, the student has not now sat and read Locke's second treatise for months. They are now being told what Locke's second treatise contains. It contains a two-stage theory, perhaps, and they have to write that down. Add that to an information retrieval revolution. It's 1987, and there is nothing available. Only the books and articles in the university library are available, and they are all unreadable. All of the lectures are torturous because you don't understand what's being said, and there is no way out. You will change, or you will fail. 1997 arrives, and shortly afterwards, the information retrieval revolution. All of a sudden, there are many, many ways to quickly un understand or seem to understand what, for example, Hegel's philosophy of right says. So, I spent six months reading Hegel and failed to understand it. You can now acquire more apparent understanding of Hegel in 15 minutes using the web. So, all of a sudden, it's easy to become a paper tiger. It's easy to become somebody who has supposedly true things to say about Hegel but they're complete heresies for you. They don't amount to anything. It's simply repeating what somebody else might have discovered. But there's no drawing out of the inherent capacities of the mind. Oxford University is still able to tell students to read things in the original so that the mind can form its own judgment. Oxford is still able to offer a BA 
in jurisprudence rather than a law degree in LLB. They're the only university that offers a BA in jurisprudence, a Bachelor of Arts degree in the philosophy of law. And that is a practising law degree because only an institution like Oxford can actually rise above this behaviourist revolution that we've gone through. Only Oxford can say, we don't care. Our reputation is such that we just don't care. So Oxford can persist in doing what was done in the 80s and before. But everywhere else, we've had the behaviourist revolution. We've had the laying out of exactly what it is that the student has to put in order to achieve. Now, when I started work in 1996 in a further education college in Scotland, I was staggered to discover the degree to which this behaviourism had infected this, the college um, system. Every single class was an exercise in drilling the students in particular behaviours. The ScotVec organisation, the vocational education body, had laid out in great detail what every student had to do in order to pass particular qualifications. So if they were passing a higher national unit in British politics, they had to explain the role of the MP correctly. The account of the role of Parliament had to be complete and correct. The description of the powers of the Prime Minister had to be accurate. So they would lay this out and teachers and lecturers would engage in a process of, of bringing these behaviours about. You had to, essentially at the end of the day, you had to have a piece of paper you could staple a cover sheet to and that piece of paper had to match the so-called descriptor. Now, that system was a dreadful system, but it didn't do much damage because most of the qualifications that were being offered weren't offered to school kids. So what was happening was a genuine education in reading, reasoning and writing was taking place in the schools, and then people who had done badly were doing college qualifications, but they'd already learned to read and reason and write. So it wasn't as if there was too much damage being done. With the creation of the Scottish Qualifications Authority, Authority the ScotVec body took over the examination board. I was in teacher training, uh, the part-time father education course at the time, and a, a lecturer, I think his name was Ian Finlay, I think he's now dead, Finlay said that it was the examination board people who were taking the packages and leaving, it was the ScotVec people who were taking over the SQA and they were staying, and it was going to be a disaster because they were going to spread their bad practice to the school exams. And that, of course, is exactly what happened. We created qualifications, so-called higher still qualifications. And these were college qualifications. These involved drilling the students in answers that they had to repeat over the course of the year. Now, I argued vehemently against this uh, and was subject to a certain amount of bullying and criticism because of it. And that's a running theme in education. Everybody wants to get along. Everyone wants to pay their mortgage. Everybody wants to get promoted. So we brought in the higher still reforms and it was very quickly obvious that this was producing illiteracy and stupidity. The attempt to fix that was the curriculum for excellence. And the curriculum for excellence can be summed up in one short expression. Stop teaching the answer. There is no such thing as the one correct answer. You must allow the students to acquire the reading, reasoning and writing abilities that are the point of the process. So that was the CFE. The trouble was that by the point we'd got to in 2005 or roundabouts there, we'd already had the contamination of the system such that it was going to be very difficult to reverse out of it. Teachers and lecturers have got a hold of the idea that they should start with what the student had to put in order to achieve the course and they would then drill the students in that. 
And the process of policy development was greatly influenced by the behaviour of further education lecturers who had um, become key players in the SQA policy process. FE lecturers, because of the Scott takeover of the examination board, were very much part of the qualification design teams and the curriculum teams. So their agenda um, was very much part of the process. So what happened was the curriculum for excellence was turned into an even worse version of higher still. The extent to which the answer was laid out um, increased. So we had more and more detail of what the student had to put, more and more cover sheets, more and more uh, very tight descriptions of specific behaviours they had to engage in, and therefore more and more teach to test, more and more drilling. I bumped into a colleague um, in, I think, 2011, who was part of the Curriculum for Excellence process, and I exasperatedly said to her that um, the process had turned into higher still cubed. It was worse than higher still. And she became quite angry or upset and said, listen, Craig, we all know it's going to be a disaster. We're just trying to mitigate the scale of the disaster. Now, I, I think I did very well because I didn't say what was on the tip of my tongue, which was, you're the disaster. None of this would be possible without you. You and people like you get yourself into these projects, these qualification design teams, with a view to getting promoted at the end of it, because that's how you get promoted, you build your CV. And it worked for her, she got promoted. But what it does is, it destroys the education of hundreds of thousands of kids. Another person I know who's done well out of this entire process said, sometimes you have to let the train crash. Yeah, but the trouble is that we've now got us in a position where all the trains are crashing, because cynical careerist people who would say anything for five grand, 20 grand a year, relatively modest sums of money, but they will say and do anything, regardless of the consequences for other people, um, if, if it's a modest advantage for themselves. Now, most parents would find that very hard to believe. The idea that your kid's teacher would actually go into the Optima building in the centre of Glasgow and sit there while utter nonsense is being spoken because they want to get on, they want to network, they want to build relationships, uh, they want to go for an interview and have already been given the questions beforehand by someone on the panel who likes them and wants them to get the job. The idea that that's how Scotland works is probably quite alien to you. I have to tell you, this is how Scotland works. So the higher still process involved the college takeover of the schools. The curriculum for excellence was a desperate attempt to fix that and it failed because it turned into higher still only worse. Now, it's very, very difficult if this continues for long enough to fix it. And there's an obvious reason why. And if you weren't a victim of this process, you'll know what I'm about to say. If this continues for long enough, the teachers and the parents are themselves the, pro the products of the process. We've now got us in a situation where any teacher up to their um, 40s, probably early 40s, any teacher is themselves a product of this higher still process. They've been through the schools during this behaviourist revolution. They've went to a university where everything is laid out in terms of performance criteria. And if you say certain things, then you must get a, a first-class degree or a, a high 2-1. Once upon a time, a first-class degree was an incredibly rare thing. Perhaps one student in 120. Three years of honours classes with 40 students in each class and there might be one first-class honours degree. Now, 
20% of the class have to get an honours degree in most universities, and in some universities it's 40%. So not only have we got a situation where the students have been drilled in the answers, but we've also had grade inflation, which encourages the students to believe that they genuinely are the intellectual superiors of most of the staff who teach them. Now, this is an educational genocide, um, and it's very difficult to see a way to reverse out of it, because, as I say, the teachers themselves are increasing the, the products of the process. Um, the, uh, the Scottish education system, for the first time ever, has seen a massive reduction in the number of members of staff in the schools and colleges in the 50s. The teachers' union has said that this is unprecedented. The number of uh, members of staff who are taking actuarial reductions in their pension, taking a smaller pension to leave, has been very high and it's not been seen before. One of my colleagues did this uh, last year and I spoke to him and he was a very sickened man. He's a good man. He was a hard worker. And he said the reason why he was leaving was, and I quote, I'm sick and tired of giving HNDs. An HND is a, a second year higher education qualification that usually leads to third year entry in university. He said, I'm sick of giving HNDs to people who can barely write their name. Now, we've got us in a situation where something like 7% of British university graduates, not undergraduates, graduates, can't read. They're functionally illiterate. The Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development tells us, I think, that 7% of our graduates are functionally illiterate. I have seen students with very good qualifications who cannot pass a basic English for speakers of other language uh, test. Most of the kids who've got a number of good hires, including higher English, don't score highly enough on an English for speakers of other languages test to be a Portuguese nurse working in the NHS. That sounds like an exaggeration, but it's actually true. I've seen hundreds of kids take an ESOL test when they've already passed Scottish hires and they fail the ESOL test. They wouldn't be allowed to work in the NHS as a nurse. We demand a higher standard of literacy from Portuguese nurses. And Portuguese is a very difficult language with a very difficult uh, grammatical structure, which is quite unlike English. If a Portuguese nurse can score 10 out of 11 on an ESOL test in order to work in the NHS, you would think that a kid who was a first uh, language speaker, spoke English as a first language with some hires, you would think that they would be vastly superior to the Portuguese nurse. I have to tell you, Scotland, they're not. So, if we want to do something about the Scottish education system, it's true that we have to get rid of John Swinney, and it's true that we have to get rid of the SNP, but it's also true that we have to do something to shift our expectations about what education is. And the trouble is, our educations increasingly are the ones produced by the system that is the very problem itself. And this isn't a problem only in Scotland. It's a problem across the UK, it seems, and across the United States in particular. The reason why we have so many young people who are disordered in their thinking and challenging authority and confused and endlessly upset and unemployable and in a state of advanced distress constantly, a large part of that is caused by the fact that they're quite literally mad. Nobody has tried to draw out the inherent capacities of their mind all that has happened is things have been stuffed in. And this stuffing in of bad sociology, bad political theory, bad philosophy, bad history, this stuffing in of things has done them no good whatsoever.
So, let's, uh, let's all take a, a moment to think about what, it, what, what would be true. What would be true if we all had a great big problem, but because we all shared it, it wasn't really acknowledged? You know, what, what would be true then? Well, what would be true would be we would hate the person that pointed it out if we had any insight at all, and we would laugh at them if we didn't. So if you're laughing right now and you think I'm plainly wrong, um, it might be the case that I am plainly wrong and I am laughable. But it might also be the case that the problem is so deep and so general that you and everyone you know really doesn't understand the first thing about understanding. And that's certainly true of the Scottish National Party's representatives in the Scottish Parliament and in the Westminster Parliament. And uh, here's a final thought. If it was the case that support for Scottish nationalism was uh, irrational given the facts of our existence, especially the, the economic facts of our existence, if it was the case that support for Scottish nationalism was irrational in those circumstances, it's also the case that they benefit from administering a system that stupefies the people. Peace.